I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm really excited to do this interview with you. Likewise. I'm very happy to be here. So I'll just go ahead and start by introducing you. My guest is Jahan Kamsazadeh. He's the author of a fascinating and wonderfully comprehensive new book that we're going to be talking about, The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness and Evolution on the Planet. Jahan Kamsazade has undergone various trainings, including training in the Mazatec mushroom tradition. He's a facilitator for legal psilocybin mushroom ceremonies, and he educates people to develop a relationship with sacred mushrooms. And you can find out more about his work at psychedelicevolution.org. To begin with, I absolutely love this book. Thank you. And I'm very excited to have you on the show. Mm, I'm, again, such an honor. Thank you for reading it. It, it means a lot. It, was, it, was a, it feels like a lifetime of work. You know, five years of consecutively focus on it. It was my dissertation, but it was more like 20 years of research. So thank you. Yeah, it was obvious that you put a tremendous amount of work and did a, so, so much research. I mean, I'm familiar with many of the books that you you uh, cited, but there were at yeah. least as many that I had not heard of as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For those of us that are really in this field, you know, I feel a lot of us went down similar rabbit holes, especially in the literature. And I also wanted to speak to that audience. You know, I wanted to make it an introduction for newcomers, but also, you know, very enriching for people that have been interested for a long time. And so I was hoping by adding a wide variety of books, I mean, I read 75 books just on psychedelics for this that people would be able to connect more with the material by you know, having made references to other books other people might have read. So thank you for yeah, having that experience. And you quite literally connect so many dots 
in a wonderful constellation. I mean, this is by far the broadest and most comprehensive approach to this topic that I've ever come across. Thank you. Um, you know, humbly, I feel the same. It was, you know, they've changed my life, psychedelics. And, you know, since 15, I've been curious about this question. How do these, you know, medicines exist, given these complex, high-level experiences, you know, changing our perception of reality? For me, they were quite an anomaly, you know, especially to, say, a materialistic reductionist paradigm. You know, how does something so profound really evolve into existence? And so it had been quite a journey myself trying to connect all those dots, you know, and then it was just then a need to be able to put into writing and express it for everybody else. Mm -hmm. Could we begin by talking about how this all started for you? Yeah, absolutely. There was a pivotal moment, is, and I talk about it at the front of the book. There was a psychedelic experience when I was 18. I took some mushrooms on the way to see my favorite band, Tool, and I had, you know, a more kind of traditional religious experience. And at the time, I was an atheist, suicidal, depressed. And I had been walking for about seven months, about five hours a day, in contemplation, trying to figure out the reason for my existence and how we as humanity emerge. I was in quite an existential crisis, you know. Pain does that. Like, why, do, why am I alive and what do I want to do with my life? And think about deeper topics such as the ego and time. And all that came to an accumulation when I took mushrooms this one evening, where my experience was of dissolving, kind of moving towards death, and then becoming eternal and connecting with God, which I thought was impossible, which the experience was more like a voice arising in your consciousness, saying that we live in a deeply spiritual reality, that love is the most important thing, followed by learning. And this one experience, because it kind of really broke me through into a new paradigm, was very transformative in a matter of hours, and I was just gushing tears that whole time. My life and my sense of self was radically different. That really set me in a trajectory for the next 20 years, mostly through higher academia, to really understand consciousness. And as I kept moving to varieties of transformative modalities, meditation, you know, yoga, therapy, a lot of community work, you know, it became very clear that it was the psychedelics themselves that had been the most transformative in my life. And I thought they could be the most transformative in many people's lives. And so I really kind of dedicated myself and kind of committed the rest of my life to really help usher in and give context, education, and awareness to these substances for the rest of humanity, because I think they hold quite a potential for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I can relate to a lot of what you described yeah. in your life. Um so how and in what ways did this change your perspective of of the world and your your place in it when that happened? Yeah, I and mean, as I mentioned, it has more than anything else. I guess at the core level, it became quite a resource, you know, really grounding in that love. And I would, I would say God is the deepest core of our reality. When I say God, I mean a deeply interconnected, unitive being, that we're all part of a larger mind that holds the whole cosmos together. You know, it's also taking a, like a large-level systems approach, that we're part of a holistic system that's deeply interconnected, and each part affects every other part. And that brought a lot of security, deeper sense of belonging, and safety, but also a deep sense of connection, you know, kind of heals our sense of alienation and rejection that can happen in this world. And it helped me see that the world at a deep fundamental sense is good. You know, it's kind of just people's 
misperception of reality that seeing themselves as so separated and fragmented that really creates this large egoic sense of inflation where people pit themselves against one another. You know, so we just happen to be in a world that has this fragmented sense of reality, but that's not the deeper truth. And it helped me kind of come to terms and at peace with our evolutionary process, that our larger evolutionary trajectory is actually moving towards a really good place, one of more sustainability, one of more harmony, one of more awareness and love. But it's a very large journey. You know, after this experience, I thought maybe in 10 years we'd get there as humanity, and now maybe it's hundreds or a thousand years, and that's irrelevant. It's more about being a part of this process and really helping that flow. That's really interesting how it gave you this perspective that that takes you out of the usual framework of time, the human agenda of of wanting of that compulsion to make things happen right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely rested and created a lot more um, sense of trust. You know, that takes away fear, almost the opposite of love, of, of just deepening into. One, that everything's okay, and that's such a simple concept, that everything's okay, but it's the difference between being at peace or not. You know, we feel that something's not okay, then we strive really hard, then we fight, then we resist, and, you know, even when we look at death, which is this large, you know, kind of event at the end of our lives, if we don't feel that we're okay with that process, we fight and resist the current, you know, especially that moment. But when there's a deeper the trust that this is just an organic unfolding through being, you can really relax and then be more present with the life that is here. And as the viewers may know, there's now been decades of research in the near end of life anxiety having to do with people that are going to die and in these clinical trials that give these people psilocybin. And what they found, because these people are so paralyzed because they have a looming fear of death that's going to happen for them for six months to two years, they come to a deep sense of acceptance around it because they know there's a continuation. And just by that simple fact that there's a continuation, they're really allowed and enabled to be present to the relationships and their sense of purpose while they're still here and embodied. Mm-hmm. And now we're facing some existential crises that are threatening <laughs> the survival of our species and the entire planet. And yeah. it's bringing that, that sense of of mortality and death to a much broader level for everyone who's paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, and there's two ways to hold it. And so something that they gave me was a great sense of hope, right? Where it's easily, if you don't, not grounded in saying this larger sense of the evolutionary process and there's an intelligence force kind of guiding it, it's easy to just drown in despair looking at the facts you know, and, and take this as like we're in a deep existential crisis and then we're overwhelmed with fear and paralyzed. And there's people I've met because they don't have this deeper sense of resource that they just give up. The despair is so large that like we just have to come to terms with our, you know, extermination as a species. And for me, this is just a part of the ride. It's a natural process of death, rebirth. I'm not saying it's not absolutely painful and very meaningful, but birth itself is probably the most painful, frightening process any of us have gone through. I mean, you're in one world that's safe and secure in the belly and the womb, and then that whole world moves into contractions and crushes you. And then you have to be forced through this very little neural tunnel, and the infant doesn't know if it's going to survive. It's absolutely frightening and confusing. But through this process, it emerges into a mass larger, 
vaster world, you know, one shared with so many different beings. And the sense of self changes and the whole new process develops very different than the prior nine months. And I think we're in the process of collectively maturing. This ecological crisis, for example, helps us realize our deep interconnectivity. So there's a lot of maturity that happens through this crisis that I think is essential for the sustainability and the growth of our planet. And that fear is, is, it seems very real, the, the threatening sense of death of our species. I think we're absolutely going to make it through. That doesn't mean rest back and do nothing. It actually, I feel, enables us to really engage more fully. And we seem to be hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. That, that makes it even harder to do what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean... As you just mentioned, I think all life resists pain, right? And there's a lot of fear and there's contraction. So absolutely, the normality of it. And oh my God, the wisdom and growth that's possible when you open to it. And I think the deeper part of it, it's not just pain for its own sake, but really coming to terms and accepting truth, right? And and that can be very painful. Truth is in the sense of a relationship could be ending. Truth is in I could be ending and dying. The truth is in... There's a lot of suffering in this world, and it's absolutely painful. And the more we open our hearts to it and digest it, the more we really, our heart expands. And so I think there's a relationship between wisdom and pain, or the expansion of our heart and pain. To have a really wide open heart is absolutely painful and agony. You feel everybody else's heart, and yet with that, on the trip side comes a lot of love. You know, So I think by closing ourselves to pain, we really close ourselves to love, which I'd say is the reason of our existence. Yes. <laughs> I love the way you said that. And talk about how psychedelics facilitate the kind of opening of the mind and of the heart and the kind of opening into a new level of maturity that can embrace things like pain and discomfort and fear and despair and, and impending death. Mm-hmm. Thank you. A great question. You know, I think commonly what people hear about psychedelics is the gospel part, meaning translating to like the really good news and the amazing transformative benefits, and like that's all true. And I think what a lot of us don't discuss is how painful and of a struggle a lot of these experiences can be. You know, I've had my most difficult experiences of life on psychedelics as all of the most euphoric and blissful and interconnected. And I think they create the state where we're really expanded and stretched. The same way when you go work out, a muscle needs to tear, and then it rebuilds and grows and becomes stronger. For myself, a lot of times, psychedelics can be like a training boot camp. And they kind of force us, you know, especially the more you stay with them, to really deal with the most agonizing parts of our lives in the sense to have a deeper sense of integrity and openness and okayness and just not be in denial of any parts of ourselves. They, they really kind of confront us with our shadow. And then as we integrate it, it creates a greater sense of wholeness and power and stability and strength. And so at the deep sense of, of our truth, and I think this lies at the heart of the psychedelic experience, but also of, of meditation and any kind of transformative inquiry, is this realization of oneness, that we're one large being. And as we tap into that, there's this deep sense of love because we are the whole thing. And it awakens us to all that pain, you know, which also motivates us. And so there's a huge correlation of people that have had strong psychedelic experiences or using them for a long time and then devoting themselves to a life of service, right? And then comes a service is born out of realizing the pain of others. 
and Maslow and his hierarchy of motivations, starting with self-survival, the belonging, the need for love and self-esteem and self-actualization at the end of his life, he said there's another stage called self-transcendence where we become of service, when we go beyond ourselves and realize there's a lot more. And that comes from the sense of, like, I want everybody else to be okay, too. You know, so I think our pain really is a portal, you know, to, to maturing to realize our deep sense of self, which is connected to everybody else. Again, I, I love the way you said that, especially use, throwing the term portal in there, that mm-hmm. where pain and suffering and, and even a shattered heart can be mm-hmm. a portal to emerging with, with a much more expanded and open heart yeah. and more full experience of everything. Yeah. And, totally. and I was just reflecting on how now I haven't experienced ayahuasca myself but I've been, I've mm. done a fair amount of reading about it and done some interviews and in ayahuasca ceremonies when people are going through these very very dark and deeply challenging and painful experiences mm-hmm. the ayahuasquero or ayahuasca shaman is usually singing icaros and or blowing tobacco smoke on them in a way that actually enters into that person's inner journey Mm -hmm. to support them in going through all of that Mm -hmm. experience. And I'm curious because of, you know, from your perspective as someone who is engaged in this work, um, how do you, how do you facilitate that with people and, and also, how do you do that with yourself since you've mm-hmm. been on both sides of that fence? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And for the listener that may not know, I hold legal psilocybin ceremonies in Jamaica. I've gone through rigorous training in the process with the Mazatec mushroom tradition, and it's been you know, a big part of my life's work. And what I found is so much of our pain comes from this deep sense of alienation and fragmentation and disconnection. You know, as, as opposed to correlated, if we're one with everything, there's no real deep fear, and there's a deep sense of bliss and love, right? But it's having this individual self that gives us so much of our creativity and what is the process of, you know, individuation. It's very psychologically important to individuate, but it's also the sense of pain, you know, it comes of rejection, loneliness, and so on. And because it's kind of like the ground formation and structure of our being, when we move deep into connection, a lot of the pain also lessens. And so when I see people in experiences that are having a difficult and hard time, simply by having them not feel alone in the process and being very empathically present almost takes the pain in half. You know, and through a, a two-year training in somatic psychotherapy called Hakomi, the difference between trauma and a difficult experience is whether somebody felt alone in it or not. But if you're deeply connected with a family, community, or love, and you're going through something hard, you're able to really digest the experience much better. You know, we just don't really want to feel alone in the pain. That's where the difficulty is. And so in the journeys, if the guide is very present and connected and attuned and in touch, you turn the painful experience into something very transformative and healing. You know, so it's a sense of a fragmentation in the human experience is what causes the trauma. So then if you bring that part of them into a deeper connection with themselves and then out into connection with the world, it lubricates the process and they're able to really move through it. And there's other techniques to make it easier. You know, if they get lost, so much of fear is just in our mind. It's mental constructs. 
So you have to help them become embodied, simply putting your hand on their feet to help them realize that there's a whole body here that's present in this moment instead of just some fabrication in their mind. It really helps ground them here in this reality. A hand on the heart to help them feel just their emotions is really helpful. Um, and the same goes for myself. You know, I've done maybe 400 journeys, and by far the hardest ones were when I was alone. And Terrence McKenna, he's become my favorite philosopher for sure. He had this idea of we should take five dried grams alone in silent darkness. And I think that's okay. You know, we can definitely that's that route. But I've also met myself and many other people have been doing this for a while that where that could become very traumatic after trying that several times. Because your mind can loop and you can move into this deep state of trauma and fear and you just get stuck there. And that whole experience could have been expedited, only took in five minutes if a guide and somebody you trust was there telling you everything's okay. Because you can lose that perspective in those states. And as they empathically move through it with you, what could took five hours is five minutes and now you're ready to move forward. So having a lifeline of deeply feeling safe, which normally involves another human, somebody you trust, I think is the best approach to working with these medicines. So considering that the, uh, the field of psychedelic therapy is just starting to open up and is still just barely becoming legal in one or two states so far, what is the availability and what are the options for people who want to take that route with another, with a supportive person, with a therapist, with a sitter, or, or the different levels of, of shamans or self-proclaimed shamans that are becoming, that are popping up all over the place? No, no, that's a great question. I think the greatest difficulty our society is going to right now, even unknowingly, is accessibility. And it's not necessarily accessibility to the medicines themselves, but to trained facilitators or you know, grounded people that are familiar with this work. And so if people want to have a legal experience, it's actually very difficult for most people right now. And it's generally a privileged individual that's able to fly out to another country, like we're holding these spaces in Jamaica, to create legal, safe, you know, psilocybin work. Jamaica is the only country where it's 100% legal, and that's where we kind of started the project there. But the Netherlands also has a gray zone where they can give truffles, so that people can get psilocybin in the form of truffles. There's a few retreat centers over there. Within the U.S., with psilocybin, people are really limited to clinical studies, which are hard to get to. But cities you know, across the country have moved forward towards decriminalization. So we've decriminalized psilocybin mushrooms here in Oakland, where I live. You know, spoke at city council, and it's unanimous. You know, the city's become very supportive. And we're moving towards statewide decriminalization. Um, the bills move forward, but it hasn't been passed completely. Oregon has now legalized psilocybin mushrooms. It hasn't gone to an effect yet, but they've also legalized psilocybin therapy. So they're going to able to train people and have therapeutic centers, including possibly retreats. So that's around the corner, but then people still have to travel. And that still leaves a lot of, you know, people without the financial means that have less accessibility. So one thing that we've done, I'm part of a project called Silo Health, and we've developed a four-hour online free training to help people sit with one another. The project should be released at the end of this month, so people can go to silohealth.co, and it's about nine different modules, pre-recorded videos, so people within the communities, you know, including minorities, can have enough 
fundamental skill set just to hold space and create a harm reduction model. You know, not to become a, a trained professional, but enough to just create a safe space and have enough awareness. And then there's psychedelic societies that are sprouted across every major probably city that hold monthly, if not weekly, integration circles. You know, so I definitely encourage people to start creating community around this. There's no need to do it alone. Like, go through the literature, get the books, do the research, but then start creating actual relationships around this so people can start holding space for one another. Mm, that sounds wonderful. I look, mm-hmm. I look forward to checking some of that out as that becomes available. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could talk about fungi or mycelium in our planet's history as mm-hmm. well as human history. And mm-hmm. you, you write about horiz- what you call horizontal gene transfer of psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that? in the role yeah. of the evolution of all life on the planet, as well as humans? Absolutely. So psilocybin is thought to be at least 67 million years old, so predates our species by far. And people really have to understand where it comes from and what it is to really grasp the significance of it. So psilocybin, we find it generally in mushrooms, which is the capid stem formation, which is the fruit of a larger body called mycelium. Um, So mycelium is a large underground network that interconnects all the roots of all the plants in an ecosystem. Mycelium, you know, the, the larger body of fungi, goes back about 2 billion years and was really the first life, larger life form to start evolving into land, it created the soil for plants to evolve, and it's likely the very first root systems of plants. So 90% of plants have a symbiotic relationship to mycelium. 80% of plants would stop existing if mycelium disappeared. And it's pretty much become the, the foundation of life of the biosphere. So that's this living network that's always been underneath our feet and our ground and through our entire evolutionary process. And it created this compound, psilocybin, that perfectly fits into the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor in our brain better than serotonin itself with no biotoxicity. The MRI studies show now it creates a hyper-connected brain state by quieting down what's called the default mode network, that, which lights up when we think of me, 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 I, 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 the ego sense itself. And in doing so, it also stimulates neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. The brain physically begins to grow. And in this hyper-connected state of neuroplasticity, the brain's able to change, and many of these pathways actually stabilize. So we've known this now for like the last 10 years. So it's pretty new research. What we have to do now is really pull back and see that these substances, specifically I'm looking at psilocybin, existed in the ecosystem of our ancestors. So as Paul Stamets, a great known mycologist, points out that the psilocybin mushroom is the most common mushroom in the Africa savannas where it evolved. So about for 50 million years, our ancestors were primates living up in the canopies of trees. About 5 million years ago, weather patterns began to recede forcing our ancestors down to the ground into becoming bipedal beings. And in roaming the African savannas for about 4 million years, they constantly would have come across the mushroom. Looking for new sources of food, our ancestors were largely plant-based eating, as most primates are. So these would have been readily available sources of calories. But we would have come across it for sure once we started following cattle. Mushrooms are coprophilic, dung-loving, so they grow on cattle poop. Right? So as we follow the cattle, we constantly would have come across it. And here we have a very grounded, stable, scientific approach for the emergence of religion. People are having mystical experiences. 
as studies have shown, about 67% of people that take psilocybin in the right set and setting have a classical mystical experience. So there's a formation of religion, but as Terence McKenna really points out, he believes also the emergence of language itself. In higher order thoughts, he would have been eating this compound that causes brain growth, and over the period of millions of years, we had rapid brain expansion. And so part of with the gene transfer you're pointing out, I took from the book of Merlin Sheldrake, called Entangled Life. He's the son of Rupert Sheldrake, and he did his doctorate work in Cambridge looking at mycelial systems, specifically in, in tropical regions. And so he was looking at how mycelium itself evolves. And there's this rare way of, of evolution of doing gene transfers within mycelial networks. And it doesn't happen very often, but it happened with psilocybin, really pointing out that there's a lot of evolutionary advantages of why mycelium would grow psilocybin. But it also not just happened within just a few species. It happened across the world, even including independent of one another. So there's over 200 different species of psilocybin mushrooms found across the world. So the idea then is why does psilocybin exist? And why would it exist and start evolving across the planet? You know, for me, the best answer I've come across was inspired from the book Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Drugs, and Evolution of the Noosphere by Professor Richard Doyle. And for his research, he read thousands of trip reports. And he deduced that the common psychedelic experience is that the participant realizes they're part of a vast interconnected living system and that they should be returned ecodelics. So now you have substances growing across a whole world that bring ecological awareness. Awareness that I'm a part within a larger whole and that we are a part of a living system. And I believe this is part of the planets and we can just say ecosystems, the way it regulates itself. The way you have hormones within your body that create homeostasis within your biology, that this is happening within ecosystems. So mycelium itself, it creates a compound that brings ecological awareness to its inhabitants and creates a greater level of organization and evolution. That mycelium that feeds on dead compounds and so on and, and, and kind of lives in symbiotic relationship with the rest of nature can theoretically live forever if the host environment is healthy. You know, the largest organisms on the planet are mycelium. The largest one being in Oregon, I think it stretches four miles and can be between 2,000 or 8,000 years old, right? So there's a lot of reason of why it would evolve psilocybin, but it's nice to see that it happened through this large entangled evolutionary process over the course of tens of millions of years with other species. Other species use psilocybin too. It just happened to be our bodies very primed, um, having opposable thumbs and so on, to create tools and really let out the creativity that psilocybin can give us. So it sounds like mycelium, the body of mycelium, exists on a level beyond just its physical body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mycelium itself, is, as we mentioned, is, uh, you know, it's almost like a neurotransmitter in the 5-HT2 serotonin receptor, better than serotonin itself. And also, it comes from, as you mentioned, a very larger body that largely exists underground. And it was largely a part of human history, as I mentioned, for millions, if not hundreds of thousands of years. But it wasn't able to integrate into the agricultural revolution. As Yuval Noah Harari points out in his book, Sapiens, mushrooms were too elusive to integrate into the agricultural revolution. Mushrooms are grown from spores, which are almost not detectable by the naked eye. And they're not like seeds where you can turn into plants and trees. And so as we kind of move into the agricultural revolution and start growing our own sources of food, we became just focused eating what we were growing and lost touch with the natural surroundings. 
And over the periods of thousands of years, we lost touch with these plants, you know, fungi psychoactives. That being said, if we go really back into history, the first religious text, the Rig Vedas, that really kind of inspired the Hindu tradition, talk about soma, a psychedelic plant or fungi that inspires one to connect with gods. We know the Greeks, for example, had the Illusionian Mysteries, that for a thousand years they took psychedelics. And so at the beginning of culture, it was there, but as we really kept moving forward with the species and lost touch with nature in general and focused more on doctrines and cultures and beliefs created within our society, we lost touch with, I think, what's the most fascinating part of nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In Brian Murescu's book, he, Mm -hmm. uh, he talked about how just before the burning of the Great Library at Alexandria and the outlawing of the Lucinian Mysteries, there was a warning from a very prominent Roman figure that if the Mysteries died, that life would become unlivable on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and not long after that, the Roman Empire collapsed. Yeah. I, I remember that line in the book. Yeah, it's a great book, Kim Bestseller, great for his scholarly research and work. And as you mentioned, like, also not long after that, we went into what we've come to call the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's been a massive loss in our species in so many ways it's unfathomable really to kind of just discount whether it be ecological destruction a sense of self-identity of who we are our interconnection with ourselves and the rest of humanity um really kind of continuing forward in our evolutionary process you know some scientists have pointed out that the brain size has actually decreased by five percent since the agricultural revolution so that's not to say there's been emotional cultural advancements and sophistication it just happens to be that we've lost touch with a sense of harmony you know, and, and it's been a devastating and tragic loss, but that also the flip side is we also have a lot to gain. So really reestablishing these relationships, you know, it's also unfathomable what can be gained in, in this process. Mm-hmm. And as anybody who pays attention to the way things evolve in our lives, um, sometimes we, you know, evolution isn't necessarily a direct line. It's mm-hmm. it's often a kind of one step forward, two steps back, two steps <laughs> forward, one step back kind of a dance. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so maybe, well, inevitably, these forays, or perhaps we might call them regressions into dark ages, are actually mm-hmm. just a natural progression through our own broader individuation and process of maturation, no matter how difficult or ugly it might seem, and how long it might take. Like, we've been in this phase for nearly 2,000 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I, I deeply agree with your perspective, and I think it's, it's wise to hold. It brings a lot more peace, you know, more um, acceptance, less resistance, you know, to that. I mean, struggle and, and resistance is a natural part of life that I think, you know, creates strength. I've already used the metaphor of lifting and creating muscle, but then also a tree stem, for example, becomes stronger when it hits wind, you know, and meets resistance and begins to grow. And diamonds is coal created out of pressure. And so we also have to accept that pain and difficulty and setbacks is a natural part of growth. That's how it occurs, you know, so, so the universe is teaching us all the time, and sometimes it's through difficult experiences that we don't want to be having. Um, there's a good book called Evolution's Purpose by Steve McIntosh, 
an integral thinking career looking at evolution, and he says that evolution meanders, very similar to what you just shared, and meander comes from a river called Meander, and so it's a very twist-and-turning river that is in Europe, so it's very windy. But the overall trajectory of the river is still going one direction, but it's just constantly moving you know, left and right, left and right, so going back and forth. And so in that sense, our larger evolutionary trajectory it becomes very clear once you zoom all the way out. That there's a complexity of life, you know, from atoms to molecules to cells. We see societies evolve or increasing in empathy and intelligence. The trajectory looks very clear once you zoom out. But once you zoom in into the details, you see all the setbacks and the pain. You know, as you mentioned, I think it's more like, yeah, two steps forward, one step back. And that one step back looks painful. And we, if we lose sight of the larger trajectory, then we think we're just going backwards and we're going to lose everything. But life grows. It wants to grow. And so, yes, there's difficult moments, and I think there's a lot of difficult moments ahead. You know, some major systemic issues from economics to ecology that we're facing right now as a species. And with every difficulty comes the opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to talk about how psilocybin and psychedelics in general, including things like LSD, appear to be emerging out of the body and imagination of Mother Earth herself mm. in response to um, planetary necessity and crises. With an example, like Albert Hoffman was likely channeling that kind of planetary imagination consciousness when he discovered LSD back in 1945, the year that the atomic bomb was detonated. And to me, it seemed very obvious that that was not a coincidence. <laughs> mm -hmm. no, I think uh, very beautiful, very correct. You know, again, we have to kind of really zoom out and see things in context to really understand what's happening. And I think a great context to start from is about planets. You know, it's very much a, a whole interconnected system. And um, James Lovelock produced in the 70s, this idea of Gaia theory, that life itself is a self-regulating process on the Earth, regulating the temperature and also the chemicals in the environment that really kind of help and sustain life. And so we're using that same kind of model to look at psychedelics because they're very self-organizing and self-organize our minds. And so, again, it's looking at this deep interplay between us and the environment. I had a journey on LSD um, out in nature, and, and the term Gaian molecules came to mind, that these are really kind of compounds from the planet of how it communicates to us. So, you know, within our body and in ecosystems, communication is generally through compounds, through chemicals. It's not necessarily through language. You know, we, we've really brought in language. That chemicals are its language. It's how it sends information from one part of the body to another, but also from species to another. And so it created these compounds that really shift our state of consciousness instantaneously to a greater sense of wholeness. So it's sent itself gross you know, founder of transpersonal psychology who held over 50,000 sessions and been working in the field for 60 years. He says these compounds state catalyze what he calls holotropic states of consciousness, states of consciousness that moves towards wholeness. Wholeness means it's integrating more and more information. And so, as I mentioned, there's a lot of reason why these create and exist in our planet. But I, I think a good metaphor, I think metaphors are a big way that we learn, is that we realize we're cells within a larger body, that body we can look at as being the planet. But each cell in our personal body 
grows out of the body. It doesn't exist on its own. It just comes to creation on its own. It's part of this larger network. In a very sense, our mind, our, our consciousness, our individual consciousness is grown out of a larger consciousness. Consciousness comes out of consciousness. It doesn't exist by itself, right? And in a very real way that each cell in our body is in a deep energetic interplay with the rest of our body, so is our mind and our being. And I think we are getting information from the whole. You know, we could say the whole cosmos or from the whole planet. And that the Earth itself is somewhat sentient and has dreams and imaginations, and there's a collective unconscious, as Jung would say. And we're drawing on all this unconsciously through our intuitions and dreams and feelings, but that becomes a little bit more conscious in these psychedelic states. You know, these deep archetypal patterns that emerge, and for many of us, the Earth will talk directly to you. You know, it's quite a profound experience, but it changes our relationship to the whole, you know, and reorients us, and I think that's something our species can use a lot of. And I think it's utterly fascinating how mycelium and the parallels of how mycelium are like the true steward of life on the planet and the parallel with psilocybin as like a kind of a steward or guide to open our minds and our hearts and our psyches in much the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's Terrence McKenna is the first to say that I really kind of sunk in that mycelium has the host of the environment really in mind that they could theoretically live forever if the host environment is healthy. So it's a deep symbiotic relationship. And life generally evolves some of cooperation and symbiosis more than competition. You know, so the, definitely the Darwinian view is off. It's not, for example, with humanity, it's not us pitting against each other in competition. It's generally been the driving force of our cultural evolution. It's been cooperation, our ability to come into groups in language and work together to build civilizations and cities and ideas and, and government and, and so on. There's, there's that shadows, but it's really the ability to come together and co-mingle to create something new. You know, we look at complexity theory. Complexity is the coming together of parts. That creates more interconnection, and out of these interconnections, novel new capacities arise, and that's what's happening through our species. And so mycelium's been the ground. I mean, it's theorized that perhaps the entire animal kingdom developed from a strain of fungi. You know, whether we can go back all the way or not, we, we've been together. The entire animal kingdom is much newer than fungi. So it's fungus has been here, deep in our environments, influenced our being the entire time. And it's developed a symbiotic relationship with all life on the planet, you know? So it has a long trajectory of very adaptive reasons to exist. You know, it's done very well evolutionarily. And it's done so by having a deep sense of connection with everything in the environment. And I think that's what it kind of teaches us in many ways. Like, it's really teaching us how to evolve because it's really learned good strategies of how to be here. You know, it's one of the deeper life forms that really survived the KT impact that destroyed most of life on the planet 65 million years ago. So, you know, 75% of the planet died from a massive impact, including all the dinosaurs. But mycelium flourished. You know, it really kind of broke down the organic material, made more complex compounds and soil that really enabled the new forms of plant life to emerge and then the higher level mammals. So yeah, it absolutely has a lot <laughs> to show us our own ways how to live. So it just occurred to me that mycelium are like a repository of information on the planet that can survive catastrophes and and who knows how many of these kind of extinction events it has survived. Mm 
Yeah, no, totally. It's, it survived all of them, you know, and it will continue. You know, mycelium breaks down dead organic matter, breaks down the nutrients for itself, but then gives the nutrients to all the life around it, specifically plants, you know, that then feed the rest of the animal kingdom. And then you also transport information electronically to all the plants in the environment. So it's a way the whole ecosystem communicates. Um, they've done studies now of mycelium, putting it in a maze, and they're trying to find its way out. And it finds the most efficient route out. You know, so it's a pretty complex and intelligent organism. And it evolves through its mycelium itself. A whole bunch of cells networked together. It just keeps expanding and growing, but it's highly interconnected. And as Joff Capra points out, that the network is the main archetype of all systems, you know, of our brain, of the galaxy, and so on. So it's really gotten this pattern down of how to exchange information together as a whole. It deeply holds a lot of knowledge, you know, and as you take psilocybin, especially a little bit larger doses, what I've seen cross-culturally is people have these deep experiences of other cultures. So I'll give it to people that are American, all of a sudden they're seeing Aztec and Mayan temples, you know, or I'll give it to people that are Mexican and they're seeing Egyptian pyramids and hieroglyphics. You know, I've seen the aesthetics and the environment break down into Buddhist temples and as if I was all the way in Asia. You know, and I've never been there. So it really kind of holds almost this collective memory of humanity for sure. And I think is able to teach us, not just for directly from the psilocybin, but from each other, because it really kind of, as you mentioned, holds this collective wealth of information that it's happy to show us that we're really kind of just showing up with open hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. And considering that fungi can survive in outer space, in the vacuum of space, that collective consciousness could extend universe-wide. You know, it might be you know, a far-reaching idea for some people, but Terrence McKenna put forward, him and his brother Dennis McKenna created the first mushroom grower's guide. So before the 70s when this was published, people didn't even know how to grow psilocybin mushrooms. They were the first to really break it down in a method, put it down in a book, and it was reprinted eight times, I think by like 1982, and sold 100,000 copies, so it did really good. But at the beginning of the book, he has this, three or four page introduction and he's saying look look i know this sounds crazy and i'm not saying i believe this but this is what the mushroom itself told me it told me it's part of a larger intergalactic organism that it did come here from space because spores can survive through space and it came and created and embedded itself into our planet and the same way we talk right now you know information can be shared across our planet the singular organism is entangled throughout the galaxy and once we're ready you know, it's saying we're just not there yet and have the maturity. But once we are, it'll share with us how to build spaceships because that knowledge exists throughout the galaxy. And so then we can move into a deeper connection with other civilizations. There's many people who take any of these tryptamines, DMT, LSD, psilocybin. And then there's studies now being done at Imperial College London where people regularly come in contact with other entities, including extraterrestrials. And that's very paradigm transforming and strange. One of those things that might be hard to believe until you have that experience. So there's this species of connection that can happen even beyond our planet, you know. And again, the mushroom told him it's in deep symbiotic relationship with all these organisms and civilizations throughout the galaxy. And it does this so we can build a spaceship and take it with us and bring it to other planets. And so in doing so, the psilocybin, the larger mushroom that exists in the deeper sense of consciousness, can also theoretically live forever and grow and acquire knowledge and expand itself throughout the galaxy. So it has a lot of incentive to have this deep symbiotic relationship with other civilizations and with other species. 
And for people who find all of this far-fetched, we've really been conditioned to close our mind to these broader possibilities by our religious and materialist and our legal culture. Yeah, so I definitely don't want to you know, lose people by going into these far-reaching ideas, but it's also a very rational idea. It's just a very new idea to try to entertain. And you know, Terrence McKenna says that we really have to come to terms with that alien is going to be much more alien than we can imagine. You know, it's natural for us to really project ourselves onto other species or the environment and anthropomorphize, right? But life could have evolved to embody so many different larger levels of different beings. You know, looking at mycelium itself here on the planet, it has quite a head start. It's just its evolutionary trajectory isn't to have arms and legs. It's just very, very different. And it's maybe helped us really create our cognitive system, it being the steep storehouse of information. It's like a large underground brain in many ways. And so, again, this could have evolved across different planets in many ways. And so we really have to come to terms that alien can look very, very, very different than anything we can imagine, and that this could be a great way for the same way we're talking plants communicate with each other and with species through chemicals. That same kind of grounding and idea can also happen across planets. You know, it's one way of Gaia, our larger planetary system, could be in contact with other planetary systems. It could be through chemicals, the same way nature and even your own body talks to it itself. Right. Quanta physics talks about this field of information, which has been correlated to a holographic field. And mycelium is very much like a holographic field in that it contains information out of which any part of it can emerge at any point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mentioned this as a physics major for three years, and one of the ideas that really came forward, I think it was the 1920s, was the idea of entanglement, so, you know, what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. And so information is transferred you know, from one particle to another faster than the speed of light, just instantaneously. So once two particles are entangled, and you can have one at the other end of the solar system or the end of the galaxy, once information hits one particle and it changes it, the other particle instantaneously changes, right? And so we really have to break down this whole idea and really see how deeply interconnected our universe really is. You know, even just looking at gravity, gravity affects all bodies in the system, even across the galaxy. We can feel the gravity of every star and so on. It's just more subtle. So there's those forces that really interplay and connect everything. Um, a good philosopher to look at was Alfred North Whitehead. He really focused on the philosophy of quantum mechanics in the 1930s. He was a mathematician that really had a lot of breakthroughs in the field of mathematics. He was a Cambridge professor, then came and taught at Harvard. And he had this idea of prehension, of how communication is actually transferred between parts of the universe. And he believed, being this hardcore mathematician, that actually the primary way that the universe talks to itself is through feeling, through a deep sense of empathy that really then breaks down into biology and chemical processes, and that the whole, the universe, instantaneously is transforming all the information through all the parts through feeling, and he calls it prehension, meaning the ability to download information before comprehension. And then once we have these gut intuitions and feelings, then we break it down rationally and cognitively and, and interpret it. And so in this sense, you know, bringing this entangled kind of really kind of ground scientific approach to particles, but also, you know, a deep thinker that really kind of spent decades looking at mathematics and physics and seeing the whole thing is interconnected informationally through feeling, it's not too far-fetched that it's also happening to organisms and that organisms could potentially evolve to really become conscious 
of how to receive information from the whole. And then here we're seeing that we're in dialogue with a deeper, vaster, say, consciousness, but organism that's evolved far beyond us. It's just very different than us. And we can come into symbiotic relationship with it, and it could teach us. So indigenous traditions, for example, throughout time, look at plants and fungi as plant teachers. These aren't just drugs. These are teachers here to help us evolve. So I think that's one positive kind of viewpoint or relationship to have with these substances is the traditional one of them being teachers. Mm -hmm. You've probably read uh, Monica Gagliano's Thus Spoke the Plant. Oh, I haven't, but I love the title. Oh, really? She has had these experiences with plants, of communicating with plants, and she describes a fascinating personal journey of that kind of experience. So, yeah, I highly recommend that. No, I love it. I, I love everything about what you just shared. Definitely. <laughs> I can tell it. Yeah. So it's fascinating how psychedelics generate these new levels of complexity and novelty. And a lot of that actually emerges and arises out of the breakdown of systems. And, mm -hmm. and in life, there's this cycle, this continual cycle of birth and death. And, and this all relates to the collective imagination and collective unconscious. So I would love for you to talk about psychedelics and how they are imagination and novelty and complexity generators. And you say in the book, or you quote somebody saying that novelty is what actually moves evolution forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Terrence McKenna's idea decades forming what he called novelty theory and the two poles of the universe one is habit everything strives to maintain its pattern and stay the same and then there's novelty which is breaking complexity breaking the pattern and creating new ones so we're constantly pushing pull between these two poles but novelty is barely winning and that's how evolution moves forward um complexity as i mentioned can be looked at as the interconnection between parts in the system and as the parts keep connecting new possibilities keep arising. You know, we can look at, for example, the formation of the Internet to be able to connect almost all individuals on the planet together and the amount of creativity, social movements, you know, arts, media, everything that can be inspired and, and come together as we create more connection between us as human beings and individuals. So that's really kind of just pointing out that complexity brings novelty, and novelty meaning something new that has never existed that's born out of complexity. You know, so it's very much, that's what evolution is. It's a process of bringing newness and more complexity and higher levels of order. And so when we look at, for example, just these compounds, we know now, again, this is fairly recent, last 10 years of putting people under MRIs and giving them psilocybin or LSD, that they create hyper-connected brain states. The whole brain, parts that have never connected, begin to connect by quieting what's known as the default mode network, the sense of self that kind of dominates the rest of the brain and, and, and represses the other parts of us, the ego part. Once that quiets down, the whole brain hyperconnects, and so the brain becomes more interconnected within itself and more holistically oriented, right? So there's more complexity and novelty within our brain, including more creativity as these connections take place, but that also reorients our behavior out externally in the world and creativity into our culture. So it brings novelty and complexity within the system of society. And so it's really brought forward, you know, novel new experiences, and, and if we want to just look at specific results. We can look at the 1960s, you know, this explosion of consciousness that kind of expressed itself in art, 
in music, in politics, you know, in literature, in dance, and in every way. You know, that was, it really, psychedelics really kind of reigned for five years legally, you know, in terms of really getting out into culture, five to ten, but really kind of hitting a crescendo around, you know, the 1960s. And then became illegal and kind of repressed, and you could be put in jail for having them, right? But that decade, I mean, impacted everything, including technology. So there's a good book called What the Dormouse Said by John Markoff. He was a editor looking at technology for about 28 years. And he really describes how the personal computer revolution was born out of the Bay Area culture that was using psychedelics. You know, so it was mostly technology was ruled by the East Coast and a lot of Ivy League universities. But it was the West Coast's idealism and kind of movement towards the liberal mindset, uh, empowering the individual, that really kind of created the computer revolution. So during the 1950s and the 60s, there was three locations focusing on LSD research in Silicon Valley alone. And a lot of the people that really created the operating systems, you know, in terms of, of hypertext computing possibilities and the computer mouse and so on and the graphic interface, we're all taking LSD. My guest is Jahan Kamsazadeh. He's the author of The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness and Evolution on the Planet. So our world has drastically changed and become more conscious and complexified because of these chemicals, but because of legality, people have really been holding back from sharing these stories. But it's found throughout the literature where these people have come forward and be like, you know, there's Nobel Prize winners, they're cited throughout the whole book, that they owe their insights that have gotten them this far to experiences on LSD, for example. Mm -hmm. And that actually goes back to ancient Greece as well, where many of the most prominent thinkers were also initiates of the Eleusinian Mysteries, which was a psychedelic ritual tradition. Absolutely. So we're, yeah, looking at the beginning of foundations of Western culture, everybody points back to the Greeks, you know, for the beginning of science and democracy. You know, so you have, you know, there you have the Pythagoreans, you have Socrates, you have Plato, you have Aristotle. You know, Alfred North Whitehead pretty much says all of the rest of Western philosophy is just footnotes to Plato. You know, really, it kind of really begins to start there a lot of the, the thinking that we've kind of been inquired and inspired by. And for a thousand years, they had these mysteries where they drink this brew called kakion, a psychedelic brew that Brian Morosku and others have really pointed out, believe um, had ergot in it from which we derive LSD. And they were making, ergot itself grows on rye, and they were using it to make beer. You know, McKenna theorized there's probably psilocybin mushrooms in there, and there's statues that they both kind of show that they have, people are holding mushrooms as well as they're holding wheat, you know, from which they grow beer. So there's a lot of possibilities of what they were using. But for a thousand years there, they had these huge festivals where people drank psychedelics. And it was encouraged that every Greek citizen would at least go once in their lifetime and make this pilgrimage. And Plato himself right, talks about these rites. And so you have these deep thinkers really putting sometimes out their philosophies, like the idea of Plato's forms, that these perfect forms that all of reality is trying to move towards really inspired by these amazing states. And you have Pythagoreans really focused on mathematics and geometry. And it's, it's pretty well known that people take a good amount of psychedelics, whether it's DMT, psilocybin, LSD. The, one of the first things that really kind of come into visual awareness is that of sacred geometry, that the world flooded with geometric images, you know, that, again, would have been there and available to the Greeks. The Pythagoreans really kind of seeing that divinity talks through mathematics and 
Plato talking about the idea of these platonic perfect forms. So, you know, our forefathers of this culture really were impacted by these states, saying that they're some of the most important experiences of life. And it's also fascinating how it's been, I think it's it's been fairly well documented that early Christianity was really largely an extension, you know, after the death of Jesus, whether he was an actual historical figure or not, um, that early Christianity was, was an extension of the Eleusinian mysteries because they were occurring at the same time. Totally. You know, Brian Morosco, I think, really breaks it down that from, you know, this context and background of Greece, you know, Christianity also was really impacted by it and rose and Christ could have been somebody that was went around house to house, really kind of bringing these psychedelic experiences and kind of playing the role of the shaman there. And these are the books that pointed out, like Mushroom of the Cross, there's no psychedelic gospels, and so it might have had a deep root within this culture. And you know, for many of us, has taken it. They're really deconditioning agents. It's one way they can see to really kind of decondition our sense of culture. You can't really control a society that's taking psychedelics, and so there'd be a lot of imperative for them to become illegal by people in power. You know, again, it happened in the 1960s and 70s where a lot of the people that were protesting the Vietnam War, they were using psychedelics, so you couldn't come at them for protesting, so Nixon just made psychedelics illegal and put people in jail. And so I believe the Bible itself was physically kind of really put together and formed 400 years after Christ, right? And it was really done by the, you know, the Roman Empire to really kind of bring together civilization under a set of ideas, that's not going to work very well with taking psychedelics, right? Because people are going to have their own ideas. And so they made, you know, as Brian Morosco points out, this vast movement to make the mysteries illegal. You know, so now knowledge isn't really grounded in the sense of a direct experience, but a sense of doctrine and rituals and ideas put together and, and clearly cultivated and crafted by somebody else. And you're really able to really have a deep sense of rule. You know, by really creating the worldview of a population and telling them what's important in their sense of beliefs, you have deep mastery. And that lasted for a long time. That lasted a long time where people just gave themselves over to a religion that was so entangled with the government, and it still happens to here to some degree. And they're willing to die for it and give themselves over, yet never really have this deep sense of experience of oneness and love and creativity that is really kind of possible of breaking through you know, to the other side with the help of these medicines. Mm -hmm. And it was largely women who were the leaders of these, or facilitators of these psychedelic rituals. And in the fourth century, when the Romans cracked down on those psychedelic rituals, women were hunted, and that extended throughout the Dark Ages up until very recently, you know, as the witch hunts and, and things like that. No, totally. I mean, the tragedy in general is, is really far-reaching. And, you know, there's centuries of burning women, calling them witches. And even what's the mindset of that? It's, it's a patriarchal society that wants power and is scared of things it doesn't understand. Movement was just to kill it and shun it. So it, it, it's quite a travesty. But this idea of women holding space also is very large within the Mazatec tradition, and it's the Mazatec tradition, and these Mazatecs are people in the Oaxaca mountain ranges in Mexico. It was Gordon Wasson, 
strangely, a J.P. Morgan banker that went down in 1955 to Mexico to get this obsession and love just for mushrooms in general. He learned that there was a mushroom tradition that kind of worshipped them. He went down there, had an experience with Maria Sabina, this Mazate Curandera, you know, a medicine woman, in 1955 and had you know, the first Westerner really undergo a psilocybin ceremony. And he wrote about it in 1957 in Life magazine. And then the whole world really at large became aware of psychedelics. Before that, LSD existed, but it was kind of like within kind of an elite group of scientists and some artists and anthropologists and so on kind of taking it. But here the whole culture became aware of like psychedelic compounds and a traumatic impact. But within the Mazatec tradition, it's mostly women that hold space. You know, so when I went down there to train with them, it's very much a matriarchal lineage. And I asked them, how did they survive what I believe was history's greatest ethnocide when the, you know, the, the Spanish had come over and a lot of the Europeans and really tried to convert everybody to Christianity and killed most of the people. So when the Europeans came, nine-tenths of the population of the Americas died, a lot of it through disease. But there's a few decades where you know, they were killing shamans and the Spanish clergy had wrote of mushroom use happening here in the text going back into the early 1500s. And so what the Mazatec women had told me is largely it's because they're matriarchal that they survived, because the Europeans were looking at people and spiritual power to be men. And so they would eradicate all the male shamans, but the women quietly kept doing this, holding space for other families privately in the one's house. And so they were really able to go under the radar. And they embraced their main kind of archetype of divinity is the Lady Guadalupe, which is the Virgin Mary. And so they largely pray to her, not necessarily as much Christ, while doing these ceremonies. And it's also embracing her, this Christian feminine icon, that also really kind of let them go under the radar, because from the viewpoint of the Europeans, they did convert, you know? But the practice of the mushroom reuse was able to stay underground, and they have a lineage going back a few thousand years to the Mayans. So, you know, it's unfortunate that that happened in Europe, but it's also the reason that a lot of women kind of held the space, that it kind of quietly survived underground here in the West. Mm -hmm. And it's very fortuitous that that did happen because in Europe, they really went after women and, and any hint of, of that matrilineage where they were killing grandmothers, mothers and daughters systemically. Yeah. I mean, the repression, I think of the feminine in general, if I'm looking at things just energetically, and I'm very deeply influenced by a tantric perspective that the cosmology of the universe can also be broken down to the masculine and feminine forces that are just fundamental. And it's repression, we can see, of the feminine parts within ourselves, the males, but then all the females, that really is a deep imbalance going on in our world. You know, so often nature has been looked at as the feminine, and so is sensuality, sexuality, is feelings. And so it's in the feminine, not just embodied feminines, but everybody that has been largely you know, repressed. And that's resulted in our ecological crisis. You know, the female part tends to move towards relationship, while the male tends to move towards autonomy. And even our economic system, capitalism, really focuses on the personal economic gain of individuals at the expense of everybody else. All people, all animals, including the environment, leading towards our ecological destruction because there's a personal profit. And so I really think it's really bringing back into balance the feminine, you know, with her intuition, with her sense of feeling, with her deep focus on a relationship is what's really, you know, going to help us have more fuller, wholer lives, but also create a deeper sense of harmony, 
You know, we, we, we've just been out of balance. So that was deeply the unfortunate expression of a patriarchal tradition, the male dominance. And in doing so, it hurt itself tremendously. Mm -hmm. And while I was reading this book of yours, I came across this quote, which I think is exemplary of a lot of what you, you write about in the book. I can think of myself bound by my skin as a separate being that uses everything around me to survive and thrive, where I can think of myself as an integral part of everything around me, doing my bit to help it all survive and thrive. Objectively, both ways of thinking are true, but if we think the first way, we destroy everything around us, including one another. If we think the second way, harmony arises and loneliness and fear decline. <laughs> Beautifully stated. That's amazing. And it kind of comes to mind is the work of the philosopher, Ken Wilber. You know, he focused on models of human growth and development and he used models you know, all the way from the East, including meditative traditions and psychological models here in the West. Put together hundreds of models and created this beautiful development of how humans evolve, but he really simplified it into four stages. And that's the movement of identity. And at the first stage, it's egocentric, where the focus, as you mentioned, on this just the sense of self purely as an individual, detached from the rest of the environment, to really focus on the skin encapsulated kind of boundaries of us. And that's there as children, for example, you know, so it's, it's a normal part of the growth process. And then we move to ethnocentric, from egocentric to ethnocentric. So then we start to identify with groups that are like us. It could be a nation, it could be a race, it could be those that have a similar spiritual belief systems. So now there's the group of people I identify with, and it's us against them. It's my group against other groups. And my group is good, other groups are bad, and there's this movement towards dominance, and we have that happening here in our across countries you know, with war and so on. And then the most next movement, so a lot of the world's there. Moving to world-centric, where these differences between ideas actually become a lot smaller, that there's more unity and similarities between us as humans. And so it's also between nations that we really look at this idea of, you know, national constructs and boundaries are made up, you know, so we're, we're a human species. And as part of the world centric, it can move even further to identifying with the biosphere. Now I'm also identifying with all of life and all of animals and, and it's part of the planet. So it's quite a beautiful motion that our species and the planet as a whole, I'm part of this large, largest system. And then the last one he called cosmocentric, where it's more of a non-dual awareness that I'm one with all of reality stretches across the entire universe, this uh, movement of both spirit and matter, of archetypal life, and so on, that I'm a part of this larger system that extends the biology and the physiology of this planet. You know, so there's kind of one with more, you know, say God, and so on, this larger being. And this is a traditional even development across all spiritual disciplines. And so it's, it's a natural movement to move from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric, but we also need to have culture and values that really kind of encourage that growth. You know, so a, lot, a critical amount of people need to move towards world-centric and really ground that into our perspective. And we see that right now, just seeing some of the news this morning, what's happening with Ukraine, where Ukraine's really feeling like they're fighting for democracy in general, for general human rights to have freedom, right? A very world-centric stance, while Russia's coming in from a very ethnocentric, and it's about our empire and our culture of dominance. But we're not going to have freedom as long as we're at war with each other. You know, there's a greater sense of possibility of freedom and our energy not being lost 
over this nonsense and creating pain and really kind of focusing on, say, creativity and connection that can really give us quite a bit and free those resources once we really move into that shift that we're a part of a larger whole. And that's what psychedelics naturally do is they they dissolve boundaries. They dissolve our psychological and even our embodied sense of boundaries. Absolutely, absolutely. I know nothing else that's as effective. You know, you can meditate for a few years, you know, which I think is beautiful, or give, you know, four or five hours of a psychedelic experience and then still keep up meditation. But just now you have this, like, deep knowing and awareness that we're a part of something much larger. Mm -hmm. So there's this notion of evolution being pulled from the future rather than being pushed by the past. Could you talk about that? That yeah. sounds a bit odd thinking about it from our typical linear perspective. Yeah, it's definitely quite a shift in thinking. It's a very teleological approach. And just to share for the listener, it's an idea that, again, stretches back throughout time. Aristotle had these four ideas of cause, of why things move in the world. There's material cause, and, you know, good things cause in terms of causality, this billiard bar approach, this ball hit this ball, this ball, or the cause of like what they were made of. But he also believes in final cause of things trying to actualize our potential. So the idea goes very, very far back. But from a mathematical approach, it's truly looking at system theory that there's this idea called points within a system that the system kind of magnetically is pulled attracted towards. And the one that's really interesting is one called the strange attractor. So, you know, a system can have its own kind of like fractal pattern, mathematical pattern, but it's pulled towards a direction. Once it hits this point of the system, it re-evolves and re-changes its shape. And so, you know, something we see in psychedelics or you see in meditation, that there's no deep sense of real time, that we're kind of timeless, and there's this deep sense of now. And sometimes you can have the experience of everything happening at this moment, the entire evolutionary process, past and future happening now. And so... The idea is also that there's there's events that want to happen. Like, for example, one way is, is like an acorn wants to become a tree. It's written into its blueprint to turn into a tree. Right now it's an acorn, right? But its full potential is pulling it forward. And another way of seeing it is if you believe in souls beyond a body, that you might have came into this body for a reason, to really actualize a potential, to do something in this world, to become who you are. And that that potential, who you are, is really pulling you forward. And so that from this point of view that I write and kind of end the book with is that maybe there's potential, these collective dreams that our species really wants to break through, that there's this Gaia, the Earth itself has a vision for us, that there's a collective unconscious, it's something that wants to be arised and be created, and that maybe we could tap into this and try to more consciously really visualize a destination for ourselves and our planet instead of having it be more random. You know, we have this idea of progress of society that we're obsessed with, but progress towards what? We're not clear on the destination. We really need to have a vision to really help make it happen. And I think these psychedelic experiences can give us this vision of who we want to become, the aesthetics that we like, the values that we desire, you know, that we can help bring these, these things into concrete reality. Could you talk about the significance of understanding the psychedelic origins of humanity and why it's so important to have an accurate understanding of our past in order to navigate the present and imagine the future? Totally. I think the best species is that we don't know how we got here, you know, and again, it's just, it's been blowing my mind now for a couple of decades of 
how are we moving forward? We don't even know how we evolved. You know, how do we know where we're going or what we are? We don't even know how we arrived here as a species. And, you know, I work a lot in the realm of just general kind of psychotherapy with people and so much of healing trauma is going back into the past and processing what happened and shifting the belief systems that happened in the past to really change your present moment and sense of self and future trajectory. And so we have this big missing moment of we don't know how we arrived. And I think the psilocybin theory of human evolution is the most grounded approach, the most rational approach, especially in, as I mentioned in the book, in contrast with the other main leading ideas, you know, the most stable and, and kind of logical explanation of how we've arrived, really grounded in the neuroscience, anthropology, through the literature, you know, every ecological explanation for our emergence. And we're really changing our human identity of that's how we arrived. You know, using that word portal really kind of opens a portal in the future because it kind of encourages and legitimizes the use of psychedelics. So, like, this is how we became human. And taking them again consciously only makes us more human. And as mentioned, you know, these experiences can really inspire these sense of creativity, of empathy, of awareness, and shifting of identity that we're so drastically leading and can help us solve many of the crises happening in this planet. It can really change our value system and our paradigm and bring us closer together and living in greater harmony. So I think it's really by deeply going in this path. Robert Bell is this great sociologist, did work for about 50 years looking at how cultures evolve, and he shares that the main, or really the only meta-narrative across educated cultures throughout the world is that of evolution, right? Before that, you have all these different really kind of religious systems, but evolution really creates a scientific explanation that can all kind of bond together around and create an identity around. And I think this fits very well within that. You know, this is a deeply evolutionary explanation of a symbiotic union between us and nature of how we've evolved. And so I can think it really kind of bring our planet together closer and more deeply in the shared identity. But by doing so, the significance of it is what we're talking about, the mushrooms and our relationship to it. And by reclaiming that relationship, I think we can create a, a future that's really worth living. Yeah, yeah. You wrote, once we collectively establish physical security, which must involve the transformation of our economic systems, then we can further explore the imagination, including mining the deepest riches within psychedelic experiences and make a quantum leap in human evolution. And you quote Thomas Berry saying that the mission of our time is to reinvent the human at the species level. Yeah, totally, totally true. I think that's the quote from Thomas Berry. It's rechanging our identity and our collective story that will reorient us in our relationship to this reality and to each other and this planet. And I've really come to the conclusion that it's really, and it's big to say, but I think it's true that it's largely our economic system that's holding us back collectively. Just looking at Maslow's hierarchy, you know, again, I suppose aren't familiar, it's like the base needs of every motivation of every actually animal is, is just largely survival, right? And so as long as we're kept in the survival stage, we can't keep developing. And the next stage is developing more deeper sense of security and belonging and love and connection and self-esteem and then self-actualization and transcendence. I think 70% of the world lives in poverty. You know, it's horrendous because we really have the means to change this. And so what needs to change is the perception of reality that changes our values of helping each other and our whole. And so 70% of the population is really kind of kept at these lower growths. They can't really evolve past really kind of focusing on food and rent. And so there's enormous loss of their potential of creativity of who they could become and what they can contribute. So that can't be freed until they have resources. 
And our economic system, as I mentioned, is really kind of focused on autonomous kind of rules. You know, capitalism is just focusing on individual profiting over other people in the environment. And it's so unsustainable. It's just a self against self against self. And I write an entire chapter from 20 pages focusing on blockchain technology like Bitcoin because I think it offers an amazing alternative. Our current capitalist system is created out of debt. So literally how money comes in existence is through an IOU. So the Federal Reserve creates money and then the government or whatever entity was like, okay, awesome, but now I have to pay you back in interest. And then banks also do this, also create money through IOUs, through, through lending, through fractional reserve banking. And so money is created out of debt, and currently there's three times more debt in the world than there's actual money, right, which is ridiculous. It's just a, a whole thing is almost like a mathematical equation that just doesn't fit together and evolve. And the way it's going, there's going to be a continued increase of more debt, more debt, more debt, more debt. And that creates a tremendous sense of scarcity and stress within all systems. And the way we're rigged right now, the more money you have, the more money you can make. It just sits there and keeps incurring interest. So the richers are going to keep making more money. The people on the poor side are going to keep getting poorer. And with that comes war. I mean, there comes racism. There comes blame as people are like they're in pain and constantly stressed and wanting somebody to blame. And, and we can. There's a lot of people we can, you know, for example, there's people hoarding a tremendous amount of money. But at the bottom of it, it's really the logic of how money is created, how energy enters the system is through loss. And it's just not sustainable. It doesn't work. And something like blockchain, you know, specifically I'll talk about Bitcoin because it's the one most people are familiar with, offers a different approach where a Bitcoin, right now 6.25 Bitcoins created every 10 minutes. It's very rhythmic and it's an open source protocol code that anybody can look up. And it's democratic and decentralized. So it goes beyond countries and nations and nobody's in charge of the money supply. And I think for the very first time, we really have a fundamental, stable, grounded, you know, alternative to ecosystems created by governments that really kind of just get to choose how money is going to work, you know. And in here, it's kind of engineered through mathematical processes that anybody can participate in. And so until our economic system stabilizes, we can't have the planet we want. Like, we're going to be... If even you, an individual could be financially wealthy, but they're in an environment of pain and of like fear and safety. You know, as, as long as there's unsafety and low money, people are going to steal from one each other. People are going to do illegal things. You know, people are going to, you know, it's happening right now with the drug trade. They're building the drug supply and killing a whole bunch of people. So that's going to happen as long as there's a level of greed. So we really at a deep structural level need to change our economic system. And it's it's the cause of our ecological deforestation, animal agriculture, you know, the rising seas. Until that evolves, it's the main linchpin for our collective transformation. And so I deeply, deeply think that one of our tasks of our society is to really kind of focus on that. And until now, relatively recently, we haven't had an alternative. I can see how cryptocurrencies could eliminate the digression of a debt-based money system, but it still locks in our current inequality in the system. And you also write about the guaranteed basic income or universal basic income, which would actually lift everyone out of poverty. Yeah, totally. It's sad that it's taking so long to get on. Good ideas is Thomas Paine for a couple hundred years. That it's the government's predominant role to take care of people. Like this main thing, and so they might do it militarily, but oh my god, like within society, like so many people fall through the tracks. And so, what if the government was more focused on actually taking care and making sure that there's a deep sense of foundation for every one of its citizens, you know, whether it's medical care or just housing or food? 
we don't all start at the same place. We're all born in different social economic systems. And so it's just really kind of just giving a deep sense of a platform and safety at that deep level, meeting those two, especially the first one, focus the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The physiological needs are met. You know, so just guaranteed food and housing for all citizens. And we have enough. There exists enough money. There exists enough food. There exists enough building materials. It's not an issue of, of actual supply of resources. What it comes down to is people aren't making that choice, and they're not making the choice because of a certain worldview. You know, that we've been conditioned where people have to prove their existence by working really hard. You know, animals don't need to do that. But we have to really kind of claim our self-worth, which is working sweat and tears. But because of the inflation and what's happened with our economic system, people, you know, sometimes can work two full-time jobs at minimum wage and they can't support their family, right? So it's really kind of falling apart on a deep level. And so, yes, yes. So I think this movement, I think, coming from love and awareness of our deep interconnection and deep sense of empathy for everybody would involve us taking care of each other, you know, because they are us. And for me, I would love to see money eliminated altogether. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's probably a quantum leap beyond where where we're ready to go at this point. Totally. I think, uh, you know, something like cryptocurrencies offer a nice bridge to the reality. There's a book by Jeremy Ruskin. He's written about 20 books in economics, but one that came out in the last decade was called The Zero Marginal Cost Society, that as technology continues to increase and becomes automized, there's less need for jobs, and we'll move into universal basic income and eventually to no need for money because we don't need too much. But if each person in society devotes one day a month to doing just some kind of community work, we'd have enough to have a whole system running. But we need to build that world. We're moving in that direction. And he says there's going to be very little need. There's going to be a few specific occupations that will be getting money, but for the rest of us, there just won't be a need for it anymore. And he thought this could happen and moving in that direction as soon as um, 2050, hmm. which is, you know, not that far away of doing away with money. <laughs> but like, as you're sure, there were definitely need a few decades to start moving in that direction. And then we would all be free to uh, engage in our collective imagination, our individual and collective imagination together. Totally. What splendor, what joy, what we could bring to ourselves and each other. I mean, it, it'll forever be evolving. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, it's been wonderful talking with you. It's such an honor. Thank you. I mean, I love your interests, your questions. It's been a delight. I loved your book, and I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Deeply appreciate it. And, and for the listener, you can get on all platforms, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target. It's uh, distributed by Penguin Random House, published by North Atlantic Books. It's called The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution of the Planet, an Integral Approach. And your website? Yeah, it's um, www.psychedelicevolution.org. Jahan Kamsazade, thank you again so much. Thank you. And be well. Likewise, likewise, my friend. Thank you. You as well. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Thank you.